my latest work, Shelter, is more about the symbol of a house. I think there's one church in there. Since it was a show in Paris, I had to have a burning church as a tribute to Notre Dame. So I did one of those. But it's mostly houses. Uh, sometimes I'll use my own childhood home as a reference. There's a painting called Subterranean, which is a little post-war Cape Cod house inside a cavern with stalactites and stalagmites. And this was my childhood home. And I kind of like all the associations that one might have with a cave. It goes all the way back to the beginning of art, you know, with cave paintings. But also a cavern is, is kind of a timeless place that may have been unchanged for eons, right? So, so it's kind of taking this symbol of the house, the symbol of my childhood, and putting it in this place of eternity where that's unchanging, sort of to preserve it. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 297th episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Dan Oliver, who is a Chicago artist that makes fantastic paintings influenced by surrealism and a lot more. We talk all about his background growing up in small town America, studying in Kansas and Chicago, and how a variety of influences that include everything from the Golden Book Encyclopedia to trips to Europe informed his studio practice and his love of history and these fantastic paintings. He currently has a solo exhibition entitled Shelter at JPS Gallery in Paris, France that runs through November 10th. He's also got an exhibition coming up this April at Lauren Gallery in L.A. Of course, you can find a lot more work at danoliverart.com and be sure to give him a follow on Instagram at dan underscore oliver underscore artist. Just a quick note to any artists that are interested, our professional competition for 2023 has been extended to December 15th. Our juror, Jeff Stevenson, is a mixed-media artist and curator at Governor State University here in the Chicagoland. He'll be selecting artists to appear on the podcast, some artists for group exhibitions, and of course, a solo exhibition. If you want to find out more information, head on over to studiobreak.com. It's really easy to apply. You submit a small fee, you email a link to your website and or Instagram, and you are done. So if you're looking at your work out there and you want to maybe share it on Studio Break or get it here at Studio Break Gallery, please apply today. If you haven't taken a deep dive into Studio Break, we have a bunch of podcasts available on studiobreak.com. Each of those posts there have images of the artist's work, links to their website so you can find out all about them. You can listen right there or just go on to Spotify or Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. There is a backlog, so you've got lots of stuff to listen to while you're working away in the studio. And of course, be sure to follow us, like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter X at Studio Break. And of course, on Instagram, be sure to follow at Studio underscore Break. And with those announcements out of the way, let's dive right into this episode with Dan Oliver. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Dan Oliver, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, David. Thank you. Yeah, super excited to have you on. Of course, you know, we met a number of years ago and became familiar with your your work. I think we we're actually in the same show, but phenomenal paintings. Um, you know, you currently have a show up at JPS Gallery in Paris called Shelter that runs through November 10th. And as we were kind of talking about, it seems like you've had a really busy year, a productive year. So excited to to talk a little bit about those recent paintings. And of course, you've got a big archive 
uh, that people can check out at danoliverart.com. Again, lots of lots of different work to check out and all sorts of info there. So I, I love starting out at the beginning. You know, as we were talking about, every artist has this kind of weird story, this weird journey. So were you always somebody that was kind of creative and, and somebody that kind of knew that they wanted to do that in life as you're, you know, growing up as a kid? and Absolutely. Yeah, I was one of those kids born with a pencil in his hand, basically, <laughs> as, sure. as you recently said. Yeah, I had, you know, an uncle who knew that I liked to draw and he had access somehow to these big rolls of butcher paper or something. And he would bring those over and I would just fill them up. I guess, you know, I got praised for it. And so I did it even more and uh, got better at it. There was um, an encyclopedia that my parents had bought. I don't know when, but it, it, it had been around since probably before I was born but uh, it's the Golden Book Encyclopedia for kids and mm-hmm. illustrated. And all the covers have these kind of surreal trompe l'oeil paintings composed of all the, um, the things in the, in the volume that start with the letters of that volume. So, like, I have one right here. In fact, uh, I'm looking at it. It's got... Uh, like P to Q. And so it'll have this this collage of these different objects that don't really make sense together. They're just alphabetically related. But what it does is it forces you as a viewer to kind of create a narrative about it. As a kid, I would look at this and try to figure out what it meant to have a potato with a puppet, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, I think that encyclopedia was one of the biggest influences on me uh until i got to art school really well and again i i don't feel so bad on on my take when i was talking to you about how i love you know being able to come to your paintings and try to figure that out you know i think that's one of the <laughs> things that makes them really exciting um well and i didn't even ask so are you uh you live in chicago now are you from chicago or are you from yeah, I'm from Southern Illinois. Uh, okay. I, I was born in East St. Louis. While I was still in grade school, we moved to Belleville. So this is all down around the St. Louis area on the Illinois side. Were you then, you know, taking all those art classes in like grade school into high school and that kind of thing? or I just had a regular sort of parochial Catholic education as a kid. My parents were working class folk, so I didn't really have any access to high art stuff. I never visited a museum until maybe high school, mm-hmm. I guess. So I was just kind of doing my own thing. And I was exposed to the kind of art that just sort of ordinary working class people would be exposed to, like Norman Rockwell or album covers, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Growing sure. up, album covers were a big inspiration. So I kind of grew up inside my own bubble for quite a while as a kid just doing my own thing not really aware of fine art and so were your parents then you know pretty supportive in terms of you kind of slowly wanted to kind of pursue this i'm assuming that maybe you went to college and you're like i'm studying art or but i have no idea my parents were very supportive and you know they're always like oh danny's going to be an artist and i don't think they had any clue <laughs> what it meant to be an artist <laughs> if they had they might not have been so supportive because mm-hmm. it's not easy being an artist i'll tell you one experience that was very eye-opening for me when i was 16 
I just got my driver's license and my brother had a doctor's appointment and because of the procedure he was having, he couldn't drive himself. So I had to drive him and I had to wait in the doctor's office, you know, while he was having his procedure done. There was a poster on the wall of some work of art and I started looking at it and I was puzzled by it and it was very complex and I started seeing more things in it. At first it wasn't obvious, it was kind of a jumble, but then I started picking out the parts and putting together a narrative. And I spent the entire time while he was having this procedure done, just looking at this one piece of art that I'd never seen before. It ended up pretty much blowing my mind. I'd never seen anything like it. Later on, after I went to art school, I realized that this was a poster of Picasso's Guernica. Mm-hmm. That was actually a kind of a key moment for me, sort of opening up my art world beyond Frank Frazetta and Norman Rockwell and album covers and things like that. Trying to figure out your path, you know, is such a weird thing. I always kind of like this balancing act to figure out your life, but then also the things that you want to kind of pursue and and the things that you become passionate about, you know, you know, what was that, that I guess impetus? So, I mean, did you just go right into like, I'm going to study art at the art Institute in, I believe it was in Kansas. Yeah. Well, I didn't go right to that. Um, Nobody in my family had gone to college. And so no one was able to really advise me. Mm -hmm. And so what I did initially was just randomly apply to colleges that family members had heard of, you know, I had no, I had no cohesive plan. So I applied to all these places and I got into all of them. I said to myself, why, you know, why these places? It doesn't really make any sense. I don't know what I'm doing. At least I had the the perspective to realize I was about to leap in, into something without really knowing what I was doing. And so I decided not to accept any of those offers, offers, and I went to Belleville Area College for a couple of years and got my associate's degree and grew up a little and mm-hmm. got to know some college-educated people and some professors there and then got some good advice and direction. So it was there at Belleville Area College where I found out about the Kansas City Art Institute uh, which is where I applied for undergrad and and went. You know, I had done two years at Belleville Area College, and so I had to do like two and a half years at Kansas City to finish my undergraduate degree. Yeah, basically, my real art education began in this junior college, and there were actually some really good professors there um, who were very inspiring and active artists themselves, which is really important i think to see somebody to have a mentor who's an active artist really engaged in making work and passionate about it was that something like when you started taking those courses and uh, kind of working through like perspective or something or kind of still life drawing or you know observation that you kind of gravitated to kind of be able to just work through all those things and get really engaged with it or is it something that kind of opened doors even even then kind of like the Uh, Picasso that you saw when you're, you know, waiting in the doctor's office? I was completely engaged with it. And there was so much to learn that I was kind of blazing through different approaches and styles and just wanting to try everything in those days. 
sort of a youthful impetuosity and impatience. Mm-hmm. Dale Threlkeld was uh, one of the professors, really great artist and friend. And then I went to Kansas City. And in Kansas City, I studied with Lester Goldman, who was another really inspiring artist, just totally passionate about his work. Unlike most professors, he would actually work on his own stuff in the studio with everybody else. And just seeing him work on it and just the way he puts paint on the canvas, you know, it says so much. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Just seeing an artist actually do it instead of talk about it was really important to me. At that time, I was really interested in cubism and kind of a synthetic collage-based cubism. And his work was kind of like that as well. So it was a really good mentor-student relationship. And did you have to kind of you know, create a series of paintings or have like a capstone there? At the Kansas City Art Institute, at least with the professors I worked with, it was more individually tailored. Mm-hmm. It was not a cookie cutter approach. Mm-hmm. So it was all about where you were in your work and what you needed to do to further it. I did have an exhibition there in the student gallery, but it was not a required thing for graduation or anything like that. Maybe talk a little bit about some of those works. Um, I would imagine these are some of those works that we were talking about earlier that maybe are something that are in your collection, but maybe people wouldn't necessarily see a lot of. I engaged a lot with art historical works. I would look at things like Giotto, a lot of early Renaissance, late medieval art. But then I would just kind of use that as a jumping off point to do my own interpretation. And I was inspired by people like Fernand Leger, other people who were kind of early 20th century. Jacob Lawrence was a big influence on me. A lot of this kind of more cubistic and collage aesthetic. And one thing I did, which was very much inspired by Lester Goldman, my professor, was work back and forth between painting and sculpture and collage and drawing with the idea that these different disciplines feed each other. And so instead of just looking at, you know, still life, you could do a drawing of the still life, and then you could do a painting of the drawing, and then you could do a collage based on the painting, and then a sculpture based on the collage. And then this whole thing kind of takes on its own life with the different media feeding each other and taking you somewhere different where you don't know the destination. That was very exciting to me. I think it's interesting too, kind of finding different ways of working through things. Um, you know, as, as somebody that studied and was a terrible jeweler, for example, I found it was something where you kind of really had to start to kind of conceptualize your ideas differently than when I was just a painter that was just letting it rip, you know, in, in terms of just showing up and just kind of being reactive. And I know that's something that we were talking about a little bit too, where you were, you know, kind of really interested more in in concepts and ideas and that slowly that's kind of like maybe evolved to allowing you to kind of work through these compositions without necessarily overly thinking it. But again, I like this idea of, you know, all these different approaches and these different media to kind of explore things and, you know, to see how they start to relate or maybe even kind of 
take you in different directions that you didn't expect. What I'm describing sounds perhaps really different than what I do now. Mm -hmm. And definitely it is, you know, in terms of the day-to-day working. But the thing that's similar about it is that working with different media and transforming images is a way to kind of draw things out of the subconscious, I would say. Mm -hmm. Because you're not just looking at something in front of you you're working with your imagination. And and so it just necessarily draws on your imagination. And so that combination of you know, representation of real things with representation of things in the mind, I think that's something that's still very much in my work. I think I think of what I'm doing now as kind of a hybrid of representing things as they are versus symbolically, like a symbolic representation. So, so things might be kind of semi-realistic or, or like a simplified version of the way things actually look, which is maybe more like the way we imagine them in the mind's eye. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think when we dream or when we, even when we try to like really picture something, we're kind of, picturing a simplified version of it. We're, 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 we're turning it into a symbol in a way in our mind. So I think working that way as a, an undergrad kind of trained me to be comfortable with that drawing upon the subconscious. And so you leave this experience, did you, did you head off straight to graduate school in, in Chicago or did you take time off and wait tables or... I worked at an antique store, restoring antiques for a year, and I, I took a year off. I, I got a loft in Kansas City, which was really cheap. I just decided to work and build up my portfolio. I was always um, really immature for my age, <laughs> and I knew it. I knew it. I needed to uh, mature a little before going to graduate school. So I took a year off, and I had this loft, and I just painted and painted and painted and and work. And um, then I applied. And I applied to School of the Art Institute of Chicago because of a poster that was hanging in the woodshop at the Kansas City Art Institute of a traveling exhibition of the Chicago Imagists. And it had four images, I think, you know, like Ed Paschke and Jim Nutt, Carl Worsom, and maybe a Christina Ramberg something like that. I'm not, I don't remember exactly. It might've been a slightly different combination, but um, I just saw that and it really resonated with me. And I knew that's where I want to go to graduate school. So I applied there and actually have kind of a, an interesting side story. I went there for my interview, got there really early, cold January morning. And, um, had some time to kill. So I was going to look at the Art Institute for a while. And I came in when they opened the doors. This is the uh, the Michigan Avenue entrance. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the new entrance yet. Uh, and I had plenty of time to kill. So I, I walked into the lobby and I was warming myself up, taking in the beautiful neoclassical architecture. And other people came by, you know, got their tickets and went in. And I just kind of hung out there for a few minutes. And then this guy walked in 
who just struck me as really familiar. He was wearing a long trench coat, beautifully tooled cowboy boots. He was an, an older man with long, dark hair and just these like magnetic eyes. And I'm looking at him thinking, who is that? I know that guy. <laughs> He's so familiar. And then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was Salvador Dali. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I noticed his little curly mustache. And of course, I was completely frozen on the spot. I, I couldn't you know, <laughs> walk up to him and say hello. But some curator came out and then whisked him away behind the scenes. And then when I went to the museum, I just had to tell somebody. So I was hanging out by a Dali painting <laughs> and uh, <laughs> some woman was looking at it. And I said, uh, you're not going to believe this, but I just saw Salvador Dali in the lobby. And she said, oh, I thought he was dead. <laughs> but which he was like later that year, he died. But uh, oh. I think this was 87 or 88. That's my Salvador Dali brush with greatness. Uh, and then I had my um, my interview with Christina Ramberg that day. And it was funny because I didn't really know who she was. I had just had seen the work and I liked it. and. Uh, when I showed her my work, there were actually a lot of things that I had done that were similar to hers. And she pointed that out. And she asked me why I applied at that school. And I told her that story about the poster in the wood shop. And I, I think that clinched it. Mm -hmm. So. And tell us a little about, you know, that experience there. I know, like I was saying to you earlier, you know, you've got such an expansive body of work and so much to look at. Maybe talk a little about those experiences there, you know, maybe how the work shifted or changed, you know, from those previous experiences. Uh, my work started to focus more in graduate school. I came more under the influence of the imagists, I would say, just being in Chicago and working with them directly. I, I worked with Jim Nutt. Christina Ramberg, unfortunately, I did not work with. Between the time that I had the interview and the time I started, she got sick and then actually never came back. Uh, but I worked with Phil Hansen, Tony Phillips, uh, Jim Lutz. There were a lot of great people. I started out doing work that was more formal and a little abstract that kind of grew out of that Kansas City collage aesthetic. And then over time, it became more imagistic. And I was, I was actually doing things that are more like what I'm doing now, where there's a bit of a narrative, a lot of the, the kind of imagery that is in my work now started to appear at that time with trees and tree stumps and houses and just kind of the dreamscapes of people who grew up in the Midwest, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, kind of the landscape that's, that's in our mind. The thing is, though, I still had that youthful impatience and i i didn't have the the discipline to really follow through with some of these ideas i i, I think i had really good ideas i would paint them in this kind of slapdash way and think that's done i don't want to overwork it you know <laughs> <laughs> when the best thing for students is to just overwork everything because mm -hmm. you can't really overwork something i think because that's when you're learning. You need to really push it. 
and, but I, I didn't know how to do that yet, but that's, that's what I was doing. And it was productive in the sense that I was kind of finding my vocabulary of forms that I would be working with for years to come. I'm assuming too, just all the the different artists that you were working with, uh, you know, not only as professors, but peers and all the visiting artists coming in. It's It's got to be a pretty remarkable experience to kind of be in that environment to, to you know, pursue your, your graduate degree. It is. I mean, you're taking in a lot of information and you're growing a lot. Your perspective's broadening. But the other thing about being in school is it's very decentering because, you know, you're a young person. What do you know? Mm-hmm. And then you have all these smart people coming in and telling you all these things. And so you're kind of following different paths that are not necessarily your own. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying on you're trying on these different identities. And so there was some of that, which it has its benefits. You learn from it, but ultimately you you have to let that go to really be your own artist. Otherwise you're just a follower. Mm-hmm. So that was something that happened to me. I think I, I kind of got pulled in a direction that was a little more conceptual than is really what I'm comfortable with. Were there any other kind of experiences that kind of you know, contributed to your trajectory at that time? One thing I can also mention, um, when I was in graduate school, between the first year and second year, I took a trip to Europe with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. And um, we spent two months traveling around. And I had never been outside the United States before. And that that had a big impact on me because I'm suddenly seeing all these things from art history class in person and in context. When you see pictures of a cathedral, you know, projected from slides, mm-hmm. you might think, and you're, you know, you're 19 years old, you might think, big deal. It's a church. So what? And then you walk into Notre Dame or Chartres Cathedral, a place like that, and you get it. You know, it's a transcendental experience. And there's a grandeur to it. And beauty that you can't capture in a photograph. Having that trip to Europe had a really big impact on me in connecting me to the past and uh, in a way that I hadn't felt connected before. Yeah, you, you think about how old something is too. I remember, you know, reading about, I think it's like, you know, you have three generations of people building the Notre Dame and then it's like, you're thinking like, wow, my grandfather is now not here didn't get to see this you know it's crazy to think about that you know all that being said the other feeling i got being in europe was that it's a like living museum like walking down the street is like a museum experience for an american being in a lot of parts of europe and so i actually am glad to be an american and living in a place with less history <laughs> because I do feel like if I live there, the weight of it might be too much. It's just around you all the time. And it you might just feel buried under all that history, but, but to go there and visit, I think is wonderful. And you can kind of create a connection with it that inspires you. And you can come back here where it's full of cornfields and, <laughs> 
houses that aren't really that old and, you know, less history. And then you can kind of create something new that's inspired by it. I'm assuming you immediately got gallery representation right out of school and could just make paintings all day afterward. Uh, Kind of kidding there a little bit, but then maybe I'm totally wrong. And that's exactly what happened. I did get representation (laughs) right right after school, but well, there you go. I didn't sell enough (laughs) to, uh, to just paint all day. So, so tell us a little about the, that post uh, experience. Then, um, did obviously you're you're you know committed to to being a painter. I'm assuming, and then trying mm-hmm. to find a way to balance all that out. Was was there like a specific body of work, maybe back in that postgraduate time, like in the '90s or something, where it was like, yeah, that's that's really when things kind of shifted or changed into something that was, um, what you were after, as opposed to following somebody else's maybe kind of tangent. I was working a lot with silhouettes in, in my painting at the time. And I was inspired initially by these cut paper silhouettes that were very popular back in the 50s and 60s. People would hang cut cut paper silhouettes of their family members in the house. You know, it would be done just by having a projector and someone would sit in the beam of the projector in profile and you would just get traced out and then cut. I kind of connected with the nostalgia of that. It reminded me of my childhood. And so I started doing images with silhouette and that transformed into kind of still lifes with objects, silhouettes of objects on knickknack shelves. My family's home was full of knickknacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the same way that I mentioned the Golden Book Encyclopedia with these disparate objects and the impulse to find a narrative in in the disparate dialogue of these different objects. I was combining silhouettes of objects on knickknack shells. And naturally, you throw a bunch of objects together, the brain wants to create a story around that. And so that was what I was playing around with. And, and some of them might be, you know, knickknacks that are reproductions of classical artworks, but others might be pop art things like a Mickey Mouse figure or like a Cupid figure. And so I was really thinking a lot about history and identity and how our identity is construct of these different cultural forces that are happening now, but also connect way back to antiquity even, you know, like a Cupid that you see on a Valentine's chocolate box is an ancient Roman god, you know. And so I I found that all really interesting that there are kind of these deep uh, connections between things that you might think are not connected at all. And it all sounds really interesting, and it is at a conceptual level, but when it came to the painting of it, I was being really reductive in my process. And to me now, as I look back on it, it was more interesting as an idea than it was as a painting to, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would do it very different now. I wasn't giving enough meat on the bone for the, Mm -hmm. for the viewer. I was, it was very rarefied and flat and silhouette. So yeah, it kind of, um, at that point I had, valued the concept more than you know the physicality of the painting 
there's kind of like this way into the work that I look at when I see toy soldiers or, you know, there's, there's one called uh, fruits of victory where, you know, we've got all these trophies or things that I associate growing up and, you know, the home, you know, with, with my, my brother or something like that. And so to me, it kind of taps into some sort of universal quality and then also some sort of nostalgia too, for, you know, I think you describe it somewhere in terms of, of your work, you know, kind of like small town America or, you know, something that maybe especially like feels, a I don't know, like it starts to kind of tap into a, not necessarily like a Midwestern kind of like perspective, but just something that kind of feels like it, yeah, is a little bit more close to that, if that makes sense. I think there's a class perspective. What was happening for me, I mentioned, I come from a very working class family, and yet I was going to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and meeting famous people and becoming educated. And one has to find some some way to wrap your head around what's going on because you come from one place, but you're becoming something else as you become educated. And it creates a distance between you and your family because there's certain things about your life that you can't really talk to them about anymore because they're just not going to get it. And so that's kind of a, an unsettling thing. And yet you still want to grow and learn. And so I think part of what was happening psychologically in these paintings, I was dealing with who I am now as someone learning about history and culture, and yet hanging on to my past and my home and trying to find ways that those things have commonality. We're taking a quick coffee break here, and you're listening to this interview with Dan Oliver. Hope that you're enjoying it. You can check out more of his work at danoliverart.com. And, of course, be sure to follow him on Instagram at dan underscore oliver underscore artist. If you like what you're hearing, head on over to studiobreak.com. Check out the archive of artists that we've had featured on the podcast. You can, of course, find it on Spotify and Apple, so be sure to subscribe there. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, which is going to let you know about upcoming exhibitions here at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago, about new podcasts, and of course, competitions like our 2023 Pro Competition that was just extended through December 15th. Of course, you can find us on Facebook, so please like our page there. You can find us on Twitter X at Studio Break, and of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And now, back to the show. Maybe talk a little bit about the, the transition that that you went through, I guess, to kind of get to maybe the work that people would see now and know, you know, that, oh, that's one of Dan Oliver's paintings, you know? And again, you know, when I, like I said earlier, became familiar with her work, there's like that super flat quality. There's like this sense of realism, but then, you know, the surrealist quality and, and these bright colors and things like that. But maybe talk about that transition in between, you know, some of the more current work, I guess, in the last, you know, chunk of time here. Yeah. So what happened, it was around 2001. I had been in so many shows. I had had solo shows. I was getting known. I wasn't having tons of sales, a little bit here and there. But my gallery based in Chicago, Lions Weir Gallery, ended up moving to New York. So I lost my gallery. And the people that took over were really nice, but I didn't have a connection with them. Uh, and at the same time, I felt like 
what I was doing in my painting was pretty much played out. Mm -hmm. There were the ideas, the conceptual ideas, but in terms of the, the making of the painting, I wasn't doing anything new. It was becoming repetitive and it was becoming a chore to mm -hmm. paint uh, as opposed to, you know, an exciting discovery to paint, which is how I feel painting should be. So it was a time for me to kind of take a break, to take a studio break, mm -hmm. <laughs> if, if you will. Yeah, I'm going um, to cut and put that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I felt like I had painted myself into a corner, basically, and I didn't know how to get out of it. I tried some different things that were just off the wall and didn't make sense. And I didn't have any commitments coming up for shows or anything like that. So there was no reason to paint. I didn't have to paint. Mm -hmm. So I just did a complete change up and I started doing music with a friend of mine, Brian Gay. And I found it really re rewarding because it didn't have all the baggage that I had with painting. When you get out of school, sometimes I think you have these critical voices in your head of professors or just an imagined audience or imagined critics and and those things had kind of tormented me in a way and it was great just to get away from that and make music and be creative and not have any rules so i ended up doing that for 15 years basically wow. uh didn't didn't plan for it to go on that long but it was a really creative and interesting period and the thing I learned from that is that art doesn't have to always be so much about yourself. I was creating narratives. I was inventing characters. I was doing a lot of songwriting. It's like writing a novel in a way. You're creating characters. And then when you sing, you're inhabiting that character like an actor. I learned so much. And I think it helped me to kind of get out of my head. I was so much in my head before with, with art and thinking a little too much, perhaps. So it was just really good to do something different. And in about 2015, 2016, I started drawing again. I always knew I would get back to art, but I did it through drawing and kind of automatic drawing in a way, an advanced form of doodling, I would call it, mm -hmm. uh, where I'm just putting marks down and then building them up and letting it become something and coalesce into a form, not knowing what I'm going to draw when I start, which is something that I used to do in my undergrad days. And so that was how I got back into visual art again. And those drawings evolved into paintings. And it started off slowly because I was working full time, had kids and a house a crumbling house that needed repairs. So, <laughs> so I kind of slowly got back into it. But this time, what was different was I was older and more experienced and more centered and confident and patient. And so I would stick with an idea and a painting until I felt it was really resolved, as opposed to before where I was always impatient and rushing from one thing to the next. And I was just so much more centered because by that time I had shed all of those critical voices in my head and 
what teachers would say. And what's interesting to me is that some of the ideas that I had, some of the subjects that I was interested in went all the way back to things that I was interested in before I went to art school. So that gets me to where to where I am now, basically. And have you always been someone that's been kind of interested in exploring drawings and, and compositions that way to kind of inform the paintings? I know you talked about that. And I can just imagine then you start kind of figuring out these compositions. And mm-hmm. I know there's four questions in there, but then are these kind of pulled then from imagination? Are they pulled from reference or photographs or observations? You keep a sketchbook religiously and you're on the subway um, <laughs> drawing or something like that? Yes, but but in phases. Uh, I do two kinds of drawings, and I did a lot of drawings during the pandemic. That was a very productive time for me. I was doing drawings every day for a while. The drawings I was doing during the pandemic were very improvisational. So I would start putting marks down, and then it would just evolve into something. So this is one type of drawing that I do where I'm just letting things happen and discovering forms without any preconceived notions that that has been a really productive way just to get something generated from nothing basically and i was working during this time doing a lot of zoom meetings (laughs) when everyone started doing zoom meetings during the pandemic and i would doodle during the zoom meetings and there are many many paintings that were made from those doodles during the Zoom meetings. I, I I actually think there's a state of mind when you're engaged in a conversation or a meeting and you're kind of drawing while you're half paying attention to your drawing and half paying attention to the meeting. It puts you in kind of this state of mind that's very flowing and maybe, maybe doesn't make you the best meeting participant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I like the drawings that get produced uh, when you're kind of in that state of mind. So that's one kind of drawing that I do. And then the other kind of drawing is more um, consciously constructed. Say I have an idea. I'm going to do a burning modernist house in the Hollywood Hills. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it starts with an image that I'm picturing in my mind. But then... You have to capture that image. For for that example, I would do research on modernist houses, and I would look at a lot of modernist houses online and kind of find something that fits the image that's already in my mind. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I would just draw it from from what's in my mind. If I hadn't gone into fine art, I think I would have been an architect. Mm-hmm. So I love designing houses, and uh, a lot of the houses that you see in my paintings, I just designed you know, from my imagination. But that's the other kind of drawing that I do where I kind of have a general idea of what the image is going to be. And then I create a drawing to flesh it out in order to make a painting. So it's more of a preparatory study for a painting. That idea that you're kind of really interested in architecture too, like it makes a lot of sense in terms of that, you know, the geometry in your work. Well, you just triggered a a memory uh, of something that I think worth is worth mentioning. A class that really influenced me in high school was drafting. Mm-hmm. And the way you represent things, you know, plan view, 
side view, um, front view, and sort of the technical aspect of it with measurements and all that. And I, I, I very much enjoyed doing that and, and the isometric views uh, that are kind of a, a very primitive perspective. All of that really informs the way I draw. Well, it's interesting to think about the way that, you know, drawing can obviously influence the process and especially this return to painting after, you know, so many years of, you know, pursuing something else with that same vigor. Um, were there themes and ideas? I know that, again, there's kind of like these geometric cages, for example, around uh, the figure or human heads. Um, you know, maybe there's some work that we could kind of highlight to talk about your your return back to some of the ideas that you were working through at the time. Well, the older work from, you know, 15 years before was so long ago that it didn't matter. Right. So the new work that I was doing actually was more related to things I did before I went through the silhouette phase. And there was no one looking at it except for me. And it just had to work for me and no one else. And I think that was what was key. And I'm pulling things sort of out of my imagination I bought another set of the Golden Book Encyclopedia that I had when I was a kid so that I could have that for inspiration. And actually, that piece with uh, the kind of cage-like form in the shape of a human head, that was inspired by something from the Golden Book Encyclopedia, just like so many things I've done in my career. And I would just go from painting to painting, and it was kind of timid at first to be painting again. I didn't know if I could do it, mm -hmm. but I just would try to do a little bit more with each painting, try to tackle something new. And I was really teaching myself to paint all over again. The first ones were pretty flat. And then I was thinking, okay, well, let's try something a little more volumetric. It was like being a student again. Mm -hmm. And I really just kind of built it back from the ground up almost as if I hadn't painted before. And I just kind of taught, taught myself to paint. And I was working with acrylic, which dries fast, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I had decided not to work with oil anymore just because of the fumes. But I started working with golden open acrylics, which have a longer drying time. And I just kind of developed my own techniques for working with it, for doing blends and just kind of went step by step. And that's what I'm still doing. And I'm still trying to tackle new challenges every time I, I do an, another painting. Are there any that stand out in your mind from the near recent work that maybe you want to talk about? I noticed, again, obviously, like fire is definitely something that comes out in a lot of the paintings, but there's, there's just so much to kind of look at. I mean, the fire paintings were a, a real breakthrough, I would say. I worked at the Chicago History Museum where I was an exhibit designer. So I was very much aware that the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire was approaching. And I had been doing some paintings with fire in them. So I got the idea to pose to the Evanston Art Center a solo exhibition on fire. And it would open on the anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire. And they loved that idea. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And I had about a year to prepare for that. So I was exploring the theme of fire, which was, was great to like have one thing to latch onto 
as opposed to just kind of bopping around from one idea to another. And I'm really interested in fire because it's such a primal psychological symbol. It can mean so many different things from passion and love and energy and excitement to anger and destruction, warmth, <laughs> transformation. You know, it's, it's a symbol that has many meanings. So it was a really rich thing uh, to latch on to. So that's what I did. I did I did paintings of neighborhoods that were on fire. This was at a time when there were all these forest fires. There were the California fires that were raging. So there was kind of an environmental aspect to to it, but there there was also this kind of psychological element to it that's that's broader and not just about a specific thing like oh a community just burned it's more like a bigger idea that things change all things must change all things have a lifespan and and die <laughs> cultures mm -hmm. people ideas beliefs you know so these are the kinds of things that are going through my head but what i was really engaged with more than than these ideas was just the excitement of painting and and fixing an image on the canvas in a way that is powerful and will like burn into someone's memory. No, absolutely. Again, I I keep scrolling through so many different images. Again, that's uh, DanOliverArt.com. You know, there's lots of great work to check out. But you know, like I think of something like the there's a piece called Inferno. And I could just imagine how fun it is to to paint an entire field of flames. I, I think about the tedious things that I paint. So, I mean, again, it's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's a field of flames. So, like, the whole landscape is flames. But then you see these sort of charred houses sticking up that look like little Monopoly houses or maybe something that Roger Brown would have painted. I was definitely thinking of channeling a little Roger Brown uh, when I painted that. The coincidental... Thing is that while I was painting that painting in my studio, I had the radio on and they announced that Notre Dame was on fire. I guess this was 20, I guess it was 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that was kind of a wow moment. I had been to Notre Dame and found it really inspiring. And the idea that it was burning was meant a lot to me because I've also done a lot of. Uh, burning church paintings. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I mentioned, you know, I, I went to Catholic school. Our church burned when I was a kid. And that was one of those pivotal moments for me. And then we would, we would go to church and in the gymnasium sort of behind where the church was, and you could just smell the charred wood. Mm -hmm. When you're a kid, I think everything seems like it's permanent. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and then to have this big, massive thing that seems like it was always there and it seems like it always will be there, just burned down was really unforgettable, a, a sort of a deeply impactful moment. And so, yeah, so I painted burning churches. And of course, I think, you know, they, they take on a more metaphorical quality as well about institutions that were once meaningful, maybe 
dying or transforming or in the context of a church, you might think of hell and punishment and some of the, uh, the sense of betrayal that a lot of people have who grew up Catholic with some of the priest abuse scandals and things like that. With my paintings, I feel like you can interpret them probably five different ways, depending on who you are and what you're bringing to it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I keep getting getting locked into these. I think I mentioned to you earlier, one of the things that's really interesting, and especially to hear you talk about like the the freedom, I guess, that you kind of have in terms of approaching these where, you know, it's a challenge and, you know, you're going to kind of combine some different things going on is that you have this really interesting balance of like the flat, but then also like the texture from, you know, foliage or, you know, various things. So you're, you know, mentioning like these churches on fire, uh, you know, I noted one called Church Fire from 2020, you know, that has mm -hmm. some pedestrians showing up uh, to, to check it out and fire trucks. And there's that really flatness of the church. There's these very stylized flames, but then there's all these, you know, textures. And it's really interesting to, to jump around to various paintings. There's one called, you know, bird's eye view with this bird flying over, you know, the suburban landscape that is partially on fire. And so it, it's really interesting to see the way that you kind of get to explore you know, those elements of the flat and then, you know, the, the, the textural elements and, you know, the way that you kind of configure new things. Church fire is the painting that most closely resembles the church where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And so I was definitely thinking about that event. The perspective that's in there is kind of, it's a quasi isometric perspective, which is very flat. That's kind of like my drafting class perspective but I'm, i was also really thinking about the perspective that you see in pre-renaissance italian paintings before they really figured out how to do one two and three point perspective i don't know if other people call it this but i call it intuitive perspective and i really i really like the idea of intuitive perspective and i i employ that sometimes still what that does for me is it gives it a childlike quality because this is an event from my childhood, but also it's connecting back to those religious paintings of, say, you know, like the 14th century, which I really like. I really like that hearkening back to previous, previous forms and other eras, especially in a painting that depicts a church. So you have the church that's on fire and the roof is caving in and there's a tree next next to the church and the tree itself has caught fire and so that that's kind of like a burning bush kind of thing sort of religious reference then you have like a, a real i guess it's like a 1980s look fire truck i actually i bought a toy fire truck to use <laughs> as my source for that because i was i was going to try just do it from memory and you know and there was no way there's mm -hmm. so many things happening with uh, all the details on a fire truck. I couldn't do it. I'm really glad I went online and I bought an antique uh, or, like, you know, like 1980s kids toy truck to use as a source on that. But yeah, that's that painting. And then the other one you mentioned uh, with the bird flying overhead mm -hmm. called Bird's Eye View, that was very much inspired by the... Um, the fires in California that were happening in 2021, or maybe it was 2020 when they started. Mm -hmm. I had a source image 
kind of an aerial view or maybe a, like a drone shot of a neighborhood. But then I kind of redesigned the houses and basically set the neighborhood on fire. Your, 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 your point of view is from way up in the sky. And so there's this bird flying by. And looking back at it now is a really kind of bold choice to have mm-hmm. a bird that is maybe five feet from the viewer up in the sky but then everything else that you see in the painting is like 200 or 300 or feet away or a thousand feet away you know but it works i got it to work somehow and i learned a lot on that painting i was painting painting clouds and painting a bird and i must have painted that bird five or six times you know and this is this is what i'm saying about the difference between being an, a mature artist and being a student. As a student, you would kind of just paint it and then be done with it mm-hmm. with the first draft. But I would just I'll just hold on to an image tenaciously now and just keep keep painting it again and again and again until it's right. It's just so interesting that, you know, language that you develop. And I'm sure again that's part of the challenge and the fun of it is to, yeah, you start throwing things in like birds that are you know, eating up a big chunk of the composition, it's a big risk. It's like, how do I make this work? I'm sure there's times where you're like, oh gosh, this was a bad decision. <laughs> or maybe it's just like, hey, just have to resolve this. You know, before we move on to maybe the more current one, I, I love this other painting, uh, Dystopia, which kind of has like this enclosure. You kind of think of just like, I don't know, maybe some sort of... A geodesic dome. Yeah, yeah. It's like a Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller dome. But I, I love the idea. I don't know. To me, it seems like this idea of like protection or trying to protect yourself from this outside world. I think, of course, where we're at in 2021. Yeah. How important is it for you that, you know, your viewers kind of get a very specific narrative or do you like them kind of connecting dots to things in their own life? I like them connecting dots to things in their own life because I, when I make a painting, I don't have just one idea. There are many layers of ideas there. There may be some paintings that lean more one way than another, Mm -hmm. but I think they all have various interpretations, some of which are more literal, some of which are more topical, and others which are more psychological or historical. So with dystopia, you've got this kind of fantasy of the city built underneath this Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome. And you've got all these buildings, some of which look very Chicago, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you've got, you know, skyscrapers and all these buildings and it's all just on fire, you know? And the whole idea of this like modern city inside a dome is it's this utopian dream you know and sort of this idea that we try to create this perfect world for ourselves but it just ends up falling apart you know because nothing lasts um and you know my own attitude is not that that's a tragedy but that's just reality that's just how it is and for me you know when something's being destroyed it's it also implies that there's something else being created, or, or or at least there will be very soon. That's something that's in all my work, pretty much. 
maybe tell us a little bit about how, you know, this last year came about in terms of especially the show that's going on. As I was talking with you at the very beginning, it seems like you've had a really productive year. I'm assuming then at some point you got the news uh, a couple of years ago, the show's coming up or, you know, you've got multiple shows coming up and you're just like, I've got to live in the studio. Yeah. Maybe talk about some of some of that in the last year. Um, Cause again, there's just tons of paintings. And then obviously we want to highlight you know, this show uh, Shelter that's up in, in Paris right now through November 10th. Yeah, in 2021, Ashley, as a result of the show that you and I were in together, I met a collector who was very passionate about my work. And that kind of kicked off a series of relationships with other collectors, been getting discovered by galleries. And so it really, it really got my career going. It was a really lucky break. And that show at the Bridgeport Arts Center, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't seem like it's a very important show. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like a little juried show, group show. But I guess you never know who's going to see your work in one of these shows. So it's really important just to get the work out there because you just never know. And somebody fairly important discovered my work in this show and started collecting my work and introduced me to other people. And that kind of kicked things off so that shortly thereafter, I had the Evanston show, which I had been working towards, and that went really well. And I had such success that year that I was able to quit my job at the end of 2021 and then paint full time, which was amazing. So I was painting full-time. I was doing a lot of different shows. I had a show in Hong Kong at the end of 2021. And by painting full-time, it was an unbelievable difference to me. You know, just the, the ability to focus and to follow through. And it seems kind of like a stupid thing to say, I guess, but you get better, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the more you paint, the better you get, duh, right? So. It was really exciting. It was kind of stressful, you know, you, you quit your job, it's scary. And I had all these deadlines and I was being successful. But one thing I learned is that anxiety doesn't come just from failure. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can be really anxious about things when things are going well too, because you don't want to screw it up. So uh, it was a bit of an anxious time, but I grew into it and uh, I painted a lot. I think I made 39 paintings last year. Each painting is probably 60 to 90 hours. So I was painting a lot. Before that, I would probably produce, you know, when I was working and I was working a lot, lot in the studio, I, I would may, maybe produce a, 12 paintings a year. So quadrupled my my output and so that's how it's been for the last couple of years now 2022 and 2023 I've been painting a lot in the studio and it's funny the more you paint the more ideas you get and you kind of stash them away to come to later and I never seem to be able to catch up which (laughs) I guess is good but I have like a list of a hundred different paintings that I, I want to make someday. 
and it keeps growing. And um, the other thing is that I noticed I've always had a really omnivorous appetite for trying different things. And so if you look at my work when I started painting again after not painting for a while, that first, you know, 10 or 12 paintings don't necessarily all go together. You know, there are certain things that they have in common because it's the same person making them, but it's obviously someone trying different things. And when you paint a lot, I think it frees you up to follow through more with one idea and do a whole series of paintings that are related, more related. So that's something I'm doing now that I wasn't doing before, because before I felt like, well, I've already kind of explored that idea. I should do something else. But, but when you're making 30 to 40 paintings a year instead of 12, you can afford to go deeper into an idea and do more versions of it and see what happens. Yeah, there's there's so much to look at. Again, I I feel feel bad that again it's not a four hour podcast because I could probably <laughs> sit down and talk about each one of these, you know. And is there like a way or like a strategy that you kind of develop in terms of like what you want to kind of put together into a show? I had done all the fire paintings, and you know, once that show was done, then of course I still did more fire paintings because I still had all these ideas for fire paintings, but I knew I didn't want to just be the fire guy. Mm-hmm. And also during this time period of the pandemic, my wife and I were taking lots of walks in the neighborhood because we weren't going out to restaurants and movies and we just take walks. And I really started reconnecting with nature and we're walking around the neighborhood. We're looking at people's gardens. So I'm thinking about foliage and flowers and plants and we're looking at houses (laughs) and we're We're talking about the architecture. And so these are the kinds of things that start coming into my imagination again. And so instead of burning houses, then you're seeing houses that have foliage overtaking them, uh, almost like a ruin that's being taken back into nature with vines. And so it's, it's an image of transformation, but maybe one that doesn't feel as destructive as fire and, and not as violent. And, you know, as far as houses go, a house has a lot of symbolic value, obviously, as well. A house is a symbol for childhood, you know, it's a symbol for family, but it's also a symbol of the self. So I think uh, a lot of a lot of these images, when you're seeing a house go undergoing some kind of transformation, it can be a it could be a symbol of a personal transformation or a house. Like there's this painting painting called Profusion that has a house with all of these vines growing out of it with flowers blooming. It kind of gives you a sense of abundance. So something something's happening, something's changing and growing. So I think that's sort of the more positive flip side of the burning house paintings. Mm-hmm are about transformation, but don't give you that sense of uh, something new yet, something new that's going to come out of that change. So that was something I started working on. And then with all the, the foliage I was painting and also thinking about a lot of environmental things, 
I started working on this idea for my Hong Kong show in December of 2022, that it would all be about nature and all be about kind of our relationship with nature. So there are paintings of flood, trees and floods. There are paintings that have fire still, there's still fire, but images with like, there's one with feet um, that are standing there. You're just seeing just kind of up to the calf and the vines are growing around the feet as if they've been standing there a long time. Mm -hmm. And the whole background is just filled with foliage. And so it's kind of got the feeling of a statue from antiquity that has the vines kind of growing up around it. And I've seen statues like that, which have inspired me. And it, it says a lot about people and if they're not changing or it's like staying in one place a long time and it's so long that the vines start growing over you. <laughs> but I think there, there are many ways you can interpret that. And that's the, that's the kind of image that I like where it'll grab you graphically. And then there's a story that needs to be made up by the viewer to explain what's going on. And people are going to have different ideas about what it means. Well, and that color too, right, is something that grabs a viewer too. I mean, there there's such beautiful paintings. And again, when I say color, there's there's stuff that's really intense. There's you know, muted colors or grayscale colors with architecture or, you know, foliage and, and beautiful rainbow skies and, all, you know, like all sorts of things right. to kind of look at. So again, it's a very enticing kind of draw into these, you know, no matter what the subject is, if they're, you know, trees that have been cut down or, you know. <laughs> right. Well, there are a lot of trees that you'll see in my paintings that have broken branches mm -hmm. or they look dead or they look burned or they look like they've been pruned back all, like all the branches are chopped off and this was something that i was exploring when i was in graduate school i think there's a pathos to seeing a tree that's had its branches cut off or like a tree stump there's something really sad about a tree stump something that's been stunted you know something that would normally grow and uh be abundant to be like chopped off. So yeah, that's something that's recurring in the paintings a lot. Sometimes the branches are broken. Sometimes they they look more cut. So those are the kind of paintings that I had in the Hong Kong show, which was called Our Nature. So dual meaning nature, the world out there, but also it's our nature, our human nature. The paintings are about both, mm -hmm. really. And I wanted to emphasize that we're part of nature as well, I think, in that work. And you have some paintings that are very kind of symbolic, like there's a tree stump that's chopped off, but then it's got new shoots of growth coming from it. So there's a painting called New Growth. And, you know, metaphorical painting. It's You think it would be dead, but it's not dead. So that was that was a phase of work that I went through that led up to then focusing more on the houses, which is my my latest work, Shelter, is more about the symbol of a house 
I think there's one church in there. Since it was a show in Paris, I had to have a burning church as a tribute to Notre Dame. So I did one of those. But it's mostly houses. Uh, sometimes I'll use my own childhood home as a reference. There's a painting called Subterranean, which is a little like post-war Cape Cod house inside a cavern with stalactites and stalagmites. And this was my childhood home. And I kind of like all the associations that one might have with a cave. It goes all the way back to the beginning of art, you know, with cave paintings. But also a cavern is, is kind of a timeless place that may have been unchanged for eons, right? So, so it's kind of taking this symbol of the house, the symbol of my childhood, and putting it in this place of eternity where that's unchanging, sort of to preserve it. So I'm, it's the opposite impulse of having it burn, you know, uh, and change into something else. This is more the impulse of a memory that is being preserved by being put into this timeless place. Quitting your job is pretty, pretty intense. And obviously, you know, you're spending all this time working. How do you kind of figure out a way to make it all, I guess, balance out? I'm assuming there's like a routine of, you know, an alarm and stuff like that. But how, how do you pass the time in the studio while you're working so intently? Well, that's a great question. I listen to a lot of podcasts, you know. Uh, I paint so much that I don't really have time to read, which is unfortunate. But fortunately, we have podcasts. And it's funny, I was listening to a podcast about Da Vinci recently, and I found out that Da Vinci used to have people read a book to him while <laughs> he was painting. So actually, Leonardo Da Vinci invented podcasting while you're painting but anyway <laughs> but no i li i listened um i listened to a lot of philosophy i started with this uh philosophy podcast called the history of philosophy without any gaps and so it's like absolutely comprehensive from the beginning of recorded philosophy to the present but also just ancient history uh not so ancient history there's a podcast on Friedrich Nietzsche that I listen to a lot. And so this has been, this has meant a lot to me because I think one thing that is undervalued these days is having a connection to culture and ideas that are outside our own, you know, to the past, to other cultures. And there's a mindset that one can get into if you're just so caught up in everything that's happening now up to the minute. You know, I, I used to be a real news junkie and be able to talk about every single issue in, in, the, in the news. And that has its value, but you can also lose perspective a bit by being so caught up in the moment and being so caught up in the same mindset that everyone else is caught up in. And I think that's for an artist, that's the important thing. You get kind of get caught up in this group mindset because everyone's talking about the same things and thinking the same thoughts. And for me, what's been really important is just to pursue things that I'm passionate about. You know, I might be listening to a podcast about the Iliad and Homer, you know, or <laughs> Uh, ancient mythology or Indian philosophy or, you know, something really obscure, but it's something that means something to me 
personally. And so what it does is it helps me connect to myself more, I guess, instead of just having the same conversation that everyone else is having. And for me as an artist, that's been a very important influence on me because it's allowed me to feel comfortable just having my own perspective that's different from other people. And as an artist, that's critical. You know, We don't need more artists that are just telling us the same things that everyone else is, is telling us, right? We need new perspectives. And the only way to get that is to kind of have some solitude and get away from the conversation that everyone else is having. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, that, that totally makes sense to me. I, I feel like there's so much to know out there. It sounds sounds silly when I say it like that, but I mean, there's so many things that you'll kind of pick up on. I think, you know, back to my days when, you know, podcasting wasn't a thing um, and then, you know, public radio started doing, you know, a format where you could download it, you know, in terms of like this American right. life or something. And I'm sure that's a, you know, show that people are familiar with. For me, you know, I listen to a lot about art and culture and the history of ideas. And I think, you know, as an artist, it's really useful and important to understand how art has functioned in different cultures and in different times and places. And what's the through line between then and now? You know, if you're an artist and you can't find some way that your art connects to ancient art, I think that's problematic. Mm -hmm. You know, how is it that what you're doing now has become so disconnected from the way that people have always made art? I think that's a really important thing to think about because I do think we tend to be very disconnected with the past now. And we can learn about ourselves just by seeing how things were done differently in the past. And also, most artists will probably tell you this, they'll look back at art history and they'll see artists that they feel like they're soulmates with. It might be somebody who lived 500 years ago, but there's something in what that artist was doing that you really connect with. So that's, uh, that's an aspect of art and art making, I think, that transcends time. Mm -hmm. And it's not about you know like what's the cool new idea or approach or concept. It's it's more about something that is intrinsically human and doesn't really change. That's something I'm really interested in. Just to remind folks, again, this, this current show is up through November 10th. Of course, if you're in Paris, it's exciting to kind of think that you've got another hundred uh, uh, ideas kicking around uh, and the list keeps on growing after this. Yeah, I'm working on my next show now, which is going to be in LA in um, April at Lauren Gallery. And this show is going to be focusing on modern structures, modernist houses, mainly, and revisiting this theme of, of burning houses, but also this idea of uh, buildings being overtaken by nature. So I'm working on paintings that are inspired by 18th century romantic paintings of ancient ruins. So, you know, like how they would have a painting with Greek or Roman ruins that would look very picturesque and they're all overgrown with vines and there might be people in the foreground like shepherds or 
who are oblivious to the the grandeur of the previous civilization that is uh, decaying in the background. Mm -hmm. With these paintings, there'll be modernist buildings that are the ruins in the background. That's what I'm working on right now. Exciting, exciting. And of course, um, just to kind of remind everybody, obviously your website is very up to date, it looks like, but is that the best place to kind of see, I guess, the current work? Or are you kind of sharing on Instagram and, and all that stuff? Yeah, danoliverart.com is the website and they keep it pretty up to date. Also, Instagram is dan underscore oliver underscore artist and post pretty regularly there. That's probably the best place to stay up to date with everything that's going on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, I'm assuming uh, people are going to be tuning in and, and seeing all the the production. I think you can top 39 paintings this next year. So I say at least 45 <laughs> or something. So, um, <laughs> Oh God, it's going to kill me. It's been a pleasure to kind of scratch the surface to get a really, uh, a great look into your studio practice and, and your kind of journey as an artist. So super exciting stuff. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, David. I can't believe how quickly the time flies and how little we actually covered <laughs> you know there is so much to talk about but um i really appreciate it and i really love your show thanks once again to dan for joining me you can check out his work at danoliverart.com and of course we noted earlier he has a show closing at jps gallery in paris france shelter that runs through november 10th contact them or of course follow them on instagram to find out about work that's available through jps of course, you also want to follow Dan on Instagram at Dan underscore Oliver underscore artist to stay up to date with new work and upcoming shows like the one this April at Lauren Gallery in Los Angeles. As noted earlier, our 2023 professional competition has been extended through December 15th. So if you're a professional artist and you'd like to apply, just head on over to studiobreak.com, look under the competition page, which you can also find in the link tree on Instagram. Artists will submit a small fee as well as an email with their website and Instagram. Our juror this year, Jeff Stevenson, is a mixed media artist and curator at Governor State University. He'll be selecting five artists to appear on the podcast as well as one artist for a solo exhibition and a number of artists for two group exhibitions here at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. Please help spread the word and get those apps in today. Speaking of exhibitions, Jeff Stevenson will be having a solo exhibition here at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. Cross Section will have a double opening Sunday, December 3rd from 2 to 5 p.m. and Saturday, December 9th from 4 to 8 p.m. So please come on out and check out our last exhibition of the year. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes. Each of our posts there have a gallery images from the artists. You can listen to the interviews right there. You can find links to their websites. And, of course, you can also find links to Spotify or Apple, wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe. That way you've always got something to listen to in the studio while you're working away. Music for today's episode is by Golden Shadow, which features myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. You can find some of Ben's work and follow him on Instagram at mbencohanstudio. And of course, be sure to follow Brett Beery. Check out some of his music linked there at Brett Beery. You can follow us at Golden Shadow Band. And of course, we did have an EP that came out, Lawn Dreams. So you can check that out in case you missed it. Once again, all of our links and everything you can find in our link tree at studio underscore break. 
course, if you're wondering about your host, you're new to the podcast, you can find all of my work is linked into the same website conveniently so that you can find it all in one place. So check out some of my paintings that are going on there. We also have that gallery tab, which archives some of the shows that we've had this past year. So there's all sorts of things to check out. Once again, be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter X at Studio Break. And of course, be sure to say hello on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. It's always great hearing from listeners. So once again, please give us a shout out, especially if you're in Paris, which is a place that I hold near and dear to my heart. Hope there are some wonderful folks there listening and wherever. So hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Hope that your studio is going strong, that you are inspired. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.